Father, you've given us the chance this morning to study, to study your word. We've heard testimonies this morning in Sunday school of, of people who have been directed into your word of how time and opportunity will give way to a sincere and compelling need to be in your word, to be studying your word and that you are good to give us those opportunities at, at times in our life. We read about one who is in this course of study five or six hours a day, they say. That is a tremendous testimony. And we have this half hour or so ahead of us, Father, in which you have put the word in our laps and you've given us the time and the opportunity. You've drawn us here. And here we are now, ready to study. I pray, Father, that we would not let an opportunity pass where we don't make the most of learning, of understanding and applying what you've placed for us in your word. That we'd never treat it casually, never treat it as something that must be endured, but rather, Father, something that becomes eternal as the word reaches our ears and enters our hearts. And we would give it our full attention, our full concern, not just to the listening of it, and the learning of it, but perhaps most importantly, to the living of it. Let us be convicted, Father. Let us be encouraged, inspired, driven, if necessary, into a walk that pleases you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 39. After that brief pause in our study, we return now to the situation of Joseph living in Potiphar's house. He's been made a slave, as you remember, by no fault of his own. But Joseph has evidently thrown himself into the work. He has become obedient to this new master, just as he was to his prior master, that being his father, Jacob. We learned last time that Joseph's diligence and his obedience was an indication of his trust in God's sovereignty and a willingness to rest in God's promises, knowing that he's not in this situation by accident, to accept even the negative circumstances are a part of God's plan. You may notice that Joseph's obedience in the face of injustice is itself a great picture of Christ. We've been saying all along that the story of Joseph offers an opportunity to see pictures of Christ perhaps better than any character in the scriptures. And here is one more, a great picture of Christ in his obedience to the Father's wishes. The Lord was appointed by the Father to suffer injustice for the sake of a greater good. Isaiah 53, 4, Isaiah writes, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Isaiah reminds us that what was happening to Christ on the cross was good because the Father intended it for an eternal good purpose on our behalf. But it appeared to us at the time to be God the Father striking His own Son, smitten of God, that is, to have been rejected. But with time and with the counsel of Scripture, we come to understand that, no, that was not God rejecting His Son. That was a plan in which Isaiah would carry the iniquity of sinners, and it was necessary because of our sin. So likewise, in this story, you find Joseph carrying, so to speak, the sin of his brothers, in the sense that it was his brother's sin that was responsible for putting Joseph in these circumstances. At least, that's the most direct cause. And it's similar to the way our sin was the direct cause for the need to have Jesus on the cross. But behind the scene, in both cases, you see the Father orchestrating those events for greater good purpose. 
So we took note of that, and we also took note of the fact that despite Joseph's obedience under these trying circumstances, nevertheless, his situation does not improve because of his obedience. When you do the right thing, according to God's commands, you typically, we all typically assume that doing good things leads to good outcomes. That's what we've been taught by our parents. And last time we studied, we noted that Scripture gives us an entirely different expectation. Jesus' obedience, for example, led to crucifixion. And Joseph's obedience is leading to greater persecution. His obedience leads to trials, some of which we'll study today. Some will come in the weeks to follow. We rejoin him here in verse 7 of chapter 39, where he has gained complete authority in the house of Potiphar, a seemingly good outcome given his circumstances, certainly a sign of God's grace. But despite his obedience to his new master, the master's wife has taken an unhealthy interest in Joseph. And it begins at the very end of verse six with Joseph's appearance. I'll just begin midway in verse six and we'll read from there. It says, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph and she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. And he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I. And he has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? As she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. Joseph is described, as we open at the end of chapter 39, verse 6, as handsome in form and in appearance. Those words in the Hebrew are almost identical to the description that we received earlier in this text concerning his mom, Rachel. She was similarly described as being attractive or handsome in form and appearance. So we know that Joseph's somewhere in his early 20s at about this point, and we know now that he is handsome like his mom, so we must assume he inherited his good looks from his mom. We can safely assume, by the way, that his good looks added another reason on top of the pile for why his brothers were so jealous of him, perhaps why they hated him. Now, in Potiphar's house, his good looks, it turns out, are a distinct disadvantage for Joseph because they've led to Potiphar's wife, his master's wife, taking this unhealthy interest in him. We learned earlier that Potiphar is a eunuch. You remember two weeks ago when we looked at the description of him, the word in Hebrew for Potiphar. Officer is actually the Hebrew word for eunuch, which means he has a greatly reduced interest and capacity for intimate relations. That was the purpose of making a man a eunuch in this case. It was believed that when a man was made a eunuch, he would be a safer risk when his job required that he be around the Pharaoh's harem. Furthermore, a castrated man would not be seen as qualified to take a kingly role over the nation. The nation's population would never accept a king over them if he was not fully a man. So Potiphar would have been made a eunuch to preclude him not only from chasing after Pharaoh's wives, but to preclude him from seeking to overthrow Pharaoh and to seize the throne from him, because he would have had no opportunity to do so in the minds of the people. But 
this procedure probably led Potiphar's wife to lose interest in her husband as well. Why would a woman like her marry a eunuch in the first place, you might ask? Well, either she married him before he took the position with the requisite change, or she married him for the money and the power that comes with his position, and she was content to find her desires met in other ways. Or she had no choice since marriages were arranged in the ancient times. So she has evidently sought other outlets to satisfy her desire. The wife eventually makes an overture to Joseph, and her overture is simple. Lie with me. Commit adultery. And Joseph's response is truly noble. He refuses, of course. To do otherwise would have been a great sin. That much is obvious. But the way in which he refutes her is the key thing you should take note of this morning. Joseph doesn't make any excuses. And he doesn't try to soothe the woman's feelings either. Instead, he states the reality of the situation. He gives a clear and bold explanation for his choice. And he stands firm in the face of repeated requests. You can't do better than Joseph in this case. First, he declares that were he to agree to her request, it would be sinning against Potiphar. Now notice that. Where does he begin? He says this would be a sin against another person, specifically the husband. And he explains, he says, your husband has come to trust me implicitly. He's given all that he has into my hands. That's literally what the Hebrew says, making Joseph's authority equal to Potiphar's in effect, in practice, not in absolutes, of course, but in the way it materializes in the everyday running of the house. He's as good as Potiphar. So he declares, look, I can't do this. I cannot lie with you. Otherwise, I sin against my master and I betray his trust. And then secondly, at the very end of verse nine, Joseph correctly describes this act as not only a sin against Potiphar, but it's also a sin against God, as all sin is. Not only would his actions harm Potiphar, but they would also harm his relationship with the Lord. God is injured, in other words, in the sense that his holiness demands that his people be holy as well. And when we are less than such, we offend him. Even if it were possible to sin in such a way that Potiphar would never know about it and thereby perhaps never be injured by it. Nevertheless, God will know and he will be angered by Joseph's sin. So Joseph isn't about to risk offending a holy and just God. And neither should we. Take a lesson here from Joseph. And I'm not referring to the fact that he avoided the sin or that he declined to enter into sin. I am hoping that that part of the lesson is already self-evident and clear to everyone in the room. And I have no reason to think I need to emphasize that further. The part of the lesson, though, that I think we need to consider is the impact of sin, first of all, on both people and God, and then secondly, how you explain your actions when you decline to enter into sin. First, you always have to understand there's no such thing as a victimless sin. Almost without exception, and I would challenge someone to produce an exception, but almost without exception, our sin will bring negative consequences to others. Just as Adam's choice in the garden enslaved the entire human race, in sin. Could he have conceived of that outcome when he took and ate from the fruit? Clearly he didn't. The point being that you and I don't have the capacity as human beings to see far enough and well enough to appreciate 
all the consequences that can fall from a simple moment of decision. So the safe thing to do is to not sin. Even in those rare cases, and again, I don't acknowledge there are any, but I'm going to leave open the door of possibility. Even in those rare cases where we might sin in a way that has no impact on others, you always have an impact on your relationship with the Lord. You're always sinning against the Lord. And our sin as an offense will produce consequences with the relationship we have with the one who has saved us from that sin, who commands us to walk away from that sin. Imagine, for example, if you were scheduled to go before a judge in a courtroom here in Austin, perhaps because of some traffic ticket or whatever, and the judge says that in advance of that court date, over the next week, he is going to be monitoring your behavior. Maybe they put a device on your car to track your speed. He will have insight into your behavior for the next week. And he plans to take into account what you do over the next week when he pronounces sentence in that trial date coming up. How do you think you're going to behave during that week? The answer is obvious, right? You have a vested interest in how that future judgment will go. You want to be as best prepared for it and in the best possible situation to receive the best verdict you can get. And you know someone's watching. So you adjust your behavior. How much more then should we guard our behavior while we await the day of our judgment before the Lord? And I should clarify just to make sure no one is confused. As Christians, we know that that is not a judgment to determine whether or not we enter into the Lord's presence. For it is a judgment that takes place after we are already in his presence, meaning in the throne room in heaven. But it is judgment that has consequences. It is a judgment in which the works of believers will be evaluated. And those works that have no redeeming value, that do not reflect our holiness and obedience to the word of God, will be burned up, Paul says, and that's the consequence that you want to avoid. So even if we could define a victimless crime, so to speak, there is still the Lord watching. He is never without insight into what's in our hearts or in our lives. You can be assured, just like that fictitious judge, he will recount everything that happens between now and that moment of judgment. Now, Joseph understood his choices in this case. He understood that they would have consequences both for himself, for others, for his relationship with Potiphar, for his relationship with the Lord. So he was not willing to make that sacrifice for just a few stolen moments of pleasure with this woman. They can't possibly equal what he would have lost. But then secondly, notice how he responds. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't soften the message. He tells her in clear and honest words, I cannot sin with you. Remember, she's the wife of the master. And as such, she can be a serious threat to Joseph. Joseph knows this. So we might expect him to find a diplomatic way to rebuff her, right? Something to soften the edges a little. I mean, he can still say no, but why don't you say no in a way that won't make her upset? He could have used excuses. He could have claimed about being worried about getting caught. He could have rationalized some reason why it wouldn't be a good idea. He could have said, I have a headache. He could have done a, a hundred things, right? But the effect of it could have been the same. He would have avoided sin, so why not? I mean, why not do it the soft and easy way? Have we not given counsel to our friends with a, pretty much that same outcome? Instead of making them feel bad about it, why don't you just say you're busy that night? What if you just say you really don't have time? That way you won't hurt their feelings. Instead, Joseph called it like it was. It is sin, and I'm not willing to sin against Potiphar or God. 
Now, that kind of response is guaranteed to prompt in this woman some kind of conviction. Now, I'm not saying she would recognize it as such, and I'm certainly not saying it brought her to her knees in repentance. But conviction, folks, is that feeling you have when someone else, by their stance, by their life or their words, causes you to feel that innate, God-given conscience that tells us that we're on the wrong side of some issue. Now, our minds can overrule that and give excuse to ourselves, but we still feel it. We feel it long enough to make a response. Now, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, it leads to sanctification. But when it comes to someone like this woman, it doesn't produce sanctification. It produces anger and it produces resentment. That's why we try to soft pedal, because we know that that's the reaction so many people will have to a simple and clear statement of fact concerning sin. I'm going to challenge all of us to imitate Joseph. The challenge is this, to stand boldly in the way he did, but not to go so far in that direction that we become self-righteous and pious and judgmental. And we lay that on top of boldness and we do injury instead of good. The solution is to not make excuses for doing the right thing in the hope of avoiding hurting feelings so that when someone else invites us into sin, we recognize up front that our defense of justice and righteousness will inevitably produce hurt in them. It is unavoidable, and we accept that as a consequence for them for having chosen to encourage people into sin. And ultimately, when you keep company with people who encourage you to do the wrong thing, you're going to have a choice to make about that. Either you help set them straight so that you can enjoy that relationship without temptation into sin, or you may have no choice but to cut that relationship altogether and to seek company elsewhere, because as Paul and others in the New Testament tell us, flee immorality, flee youthful lusts, flee the enemy. So if you don't follow Joseph in this way, you take a greater risk. The risk you take is with your own walk, with your own sanctification. Because when you negotiate an offer of sin to arrive at some some middle ground that won't offend but won't cause you to do something you don't really want to do, you begin to lose any advantage in the battle you have with the enemy and with the flesh. You immediately give up one of your strongest advantages in that battle. Consider, for example, the woman who negotiated with the temptation that Satan brought in the garden. She debated the merits of the serpent's suggestion. She rationalized the benefits of the fruit when she finally looked upon it. Eventually, she succumbed to the whole thing. What she should have done was say what Joseph said in so many words. I know she tried, but eventually she let that negotiation draw her in. She should have said, I know this is sin. I know sin brings ruin to my husband and to my relationship with the Lord. End of conversation. And if the conversation is continued by the other side, flee. It's just that simple. Simple, but difficult to do. And that's our best path. Friends, don't feel any obligation to protect the feelings of someone who invites you into sin. Ultimately, that person is not your friend. Not that they can't be your friend, but they're not acting as your friend. Tell them you won't sin. Call it what it is. I'm sorry, I can't sin, and that's sin. And yes, you'll see a reaction in their face, and perhaps not one you enjoy, perhaps one that puts the relationship at risk. That's a result that lies with them, not with you. Tell them you are determined to avoid sin because you don't want to harm them. You don't want to harm yourself. You don't want to harm others. And you don't want to injure your relationship with the Lord. Now, I challenge you, if you follow that pattern in love, 
You may be surprised at the kind of response you get from time to time with certain people that God is working with who may be convicted and recognized by your response that they are in fact the one who's wrong. If you soft pedal your response, you lose perhaps the opportunity to be that influence. And of course, when you make those right choices, like Joseph did here, and you do the right thing, naturally, good things are going to follow, right? Well, the last time we saw Joseph do the right thing, what happened? He ended up in slavery. Well, like the last time, despite doing the right thing, now his circumstances are not going to improve. They're going to get worse again. And the scripture again is calling us to understand what spiritual maturity looks like. In our walk with Christ as a disciple, we are called to live according to the standards of the kingdom, a kingdom, by the way, which has not yet arrived in full measure on earth, but is soon to come. But we're to live by the standards of that future kingdom even now while we await. But the problem is we're living in a world that is a fallen, sinful kingdom. So our holiness standards of the new kingdom offend the sensibilities of the existing kingdom. And when that happens, the existing kingdom persecutes the family of God. And Jesus said, if they persecuted me, you as a slave of the master are not greater than your master. You too will experience persecution. So again, the spiritually mature understanding of scripture recognizes that you do the right thing for the right reasons and you expect not to be rewarded for it in this world. The reward is waiting for you in the next. Now, if you feel that this deal is a bit unfair, and I certainly don't blame you because I've had that feeling myself from time to time, I want to remind you once again of the deal that our Lord received from his father, which is once again being pictured here in the story of Joseph. Jesus was tempted by the enemy. Do you remember during this time in the wilderness for 40 days? He was tempted. He was tempted just in the same way that Joseph is being tempted now by Potiphar's wife. Jesus was given the chance to have an earthly kingdom, at least the one that the enemy could give him. And if he had chosen that path, then he may have taken himself off the path of going to the cross. So it was a very real, a very meaningful temptation. He only had to repeat the sin of Adam. And that would have been all that it took. And as we know, he refused to do that. He called to mind the word of God. He declared that Satan was wrong. He didn't soft pedal his response to Satan. Just like Joseph Jesus had received all the authority of his father. Joseph says, I've received all the authority of Potiphar. Joseph says, I'm not going to turn my back on that authority and disappoint the one who's given it to me. Jesus says, I'm not going to turn my back on the father and disappoint him or disobey him. And the same way that Joseph is going to suffer the negative response, so did Jesus. By his obedience, he was qualifying himself to become the perfect sacrifice necessary to atone for sin. His obedience in the desert led to the cross. So Joseph makes his declaration to Potiphar's wife. Now he's assured that she is not going to give him preferential treatment anymore. He didn't know what was going to happen, of course. His trust with the Lord meant that he could rest in the knowledge of that whatever might happen next is according to God's will. Negative though it may be. So let's go to verse 10. As she spoke to Joseph day after day. He did not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. Now, it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the household was there inside. She caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. 
When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came into me to lie with me, and I screamed. When he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. And then she spoke to him with these words. The Hebrew slave whom he brought to us came into me to make sport of me. And as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Now, when his master heard the words of his wife, which he spoke to him, saying, this is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in the jail. Well, we expected this. Potiphar's wife's not happy with the rebuke. And she's determined to have her way. And she keeps trying. And as we read, she times this last advance for a moment in which she and Joseph are alone in the house. She grabs onto him tightly. She makes this demand. She expects him to give in. But in his response, Joseph follows Scripture's demands. And he literally flees from this woman and from the temptation. Now, there are times, folks, in the Bible when the instructions of Scripture to flee temptation are meant euphemistically. Flee it in your mind, flee it in your heart, certainly. But there are also times when flee means flee. There is no substitute, frankly, for separating yourself physically from a person or place or influence that causes us to sin. There's just no substitute for that. If you can leave the place, the person or the influence, your chance to fall to that temptation drop dramatically. Well, when he flees, she's left holding a piece of his clothing. Having been made a fool multiple times now by Joseph, and then finally in this one moment, she decides to seek her revenge. And what she's going to do, of course, is make a false accusation against Joseph. So she takes the clothing and she uses it now as a proof for her case that she was sexually assaulted by Joseph. And I want you to notice how she does this. She's very crafty. Her accusation actually takes part in two ways or two parts to her accusation. First, she makes an accusation against her husband in front of all of the other servants of the house. That's the sense you get in the text when she says she called the men of the house. Those are the male servants. And then she says in verse 14, see, he has brought in a Hebrew. Well, the he there refers to Potiphar. See, he, my husband, brought in this Hebrew to make sport of us. And her purpose in this is to make all the other servants of the household co-victims with her to gain their support against Joseph. She maligns her husband publicly in front of all of them just to bring some shock value to the whole conversation. And then later, Potiphar comes home and then stage two kicks in. She makes the same accusation to him with that same piece of clothing as proof. And Potiphar's response, of course, is to imprison Joseph. Frankly, that's a pretty mild response. It's surprisingly mild. Keep in mind, he is the captain of the guard. That means he literally has, under the law, the authority to execute people. He does this for his day job, okay? This is just going to work for him. Secondly, this is a slave. Slaves count for nothing. It's property. If you have a piece of property you want to destroy, it's up to you. You can do it. Likewise, a slave, they could be killed for any reason. You've got a guy with the legal authority to kill that does it all the time and a slave that deserves to be killed according to the law. Adultery is a death penalty offense in that age and in that culture. But he doesn't do it. 
So my assumption, and this is strictly an assumption, I suspect that Potiphar's grace here is an indication that he has some doubt concerning his wife's accusation. Now, why do I think that? Well, again, it's pure speculation on my part. But I'm putting two and two together, so to speak. I can't believe this is the first time she's ever done something like this. He's a eunuch, after all. And he really respects Joseph. It's very out of keeping with Joseph. The problem for Potiphar, though, is he has a wife with a piece of clothing who's demanding a response. She's already shamed him in front of the entire household of of staff. If he doesn't make some kind of response, he looks like a fool. And she knew that this would have to be the way it worked. That's why she orchestrated it the way she did, so that he'd have no choice but to do something. But he does the least he can do. He puts him in the king's jail. So once again, Joseph does the right thing, yet his upright behavior lands him in greater trouble. But in the fact that he goes to prison and not to the gallows is our proof to know the Lord is working in Joseph's circumstances. In fact, there is an intriguing little piece of evidence in the narrative that gives us, I believe, confirmation that God is working. It's intended as confirmation. And what is that little detail? Well, it's the clothing, of course. The clothing. Remember, it was Joseph's coat that caused his brothers to have anger over him in the first downfall that brought Joseph out of being a brother to being a slave. That coat became their tool to cover up their sin. Once again, Joseph's clothing has become the reason or the means by which Potiphar's wife can make this false accusation. It has become a tool to cover up her sin. Now, that detail cannot be coincidence. Nothing in the scripture is coincidence. But that detail, it's like God's signature on this moment to communicate to us that this is a pattern. You've seen this before. You've seen it now again. This is me working. He's not going to prison because he did the wrong thing. He's not going to prison because I left the throne for a day, turned my back on him, and then this happened. You're watching me at work. In the same way, time after time, you're watching me. It's the same as the birthright process. Every time we turn around, the younger is going to receive the birthright and the older will serve the younger. A counterintuitive, unexpected outcome. But when it's happened to three different families in the line of the promise, you've got to stop saying it's coincidence. You've got to recognize God's doing something here. And in the way he does it, he's teaching us something. Well, the clothing here is a clue that tells us God wanted Joseph to experience more trials, even more than he had up to that point, to go into prison, not because Joseph deserved it. In fact, Joseph continues to act in obedience, but so that God can use it. Now, the question for us as we end today is why and how and where is this headed? Well, that's why we have the rest of the book. And we have more Sundays ahead, God permitting, and we will study it as we go. Let's go to a time of prayer and then communion together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the lessons of your word, lessons that are timeless, that teach us not only of what Joseph experienced and how he responded, but also for how we would respond when we face similar circumstances. I pray that the word spoken and taught would be come out according to your will, Father, and in keeping with your spirit's direction, that it not be my words, that it were properly representing your words. But I know, Father, that despite my weakness and my meager attempts, you are great enough and powerful enough to instill in the hearts of every listener just what you intend. So I leave that, Father, and I trust in that, and I ask, Father, that we would all be given the courage and the strength to obey according to what you have taught. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.